0: This podcast is from the team at Healthcare IT Leaders, a national leader in IT consulting and workforce solutions serving top U.S. hospital systems. You can support our show by leaving a five-star review on Apple, Spotify,
1: or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening. Now here's our latest episode. So you look at, you know, how can we become more efficient, more productive, and, you know, most ways that we become more productive are incremental. You know, we Uh, we, we, maybe we have one less scrub tech in the OR for a heart case, or we ask people to work a little harder. Um, but then if you think of, um, these giant disruptive changes, um, think of Henry Ford, um, who made the assembly line, who made leaps, you know, logarithmic thousand percent improvement in productivity. I think those are the kind of things we need to look for. From healthcare IT leaders, you're listening to Leader to Leader with Ben Hilmes. On today's episode, our guest is Steve Edwards, the former CEO of Cox Health, a Missouri-based not-for-profit health system with six hospitals and nearly 12,000 employees. Steve's 30-plus-year career gives him a unique perspective on current challenges and growth opportunities in healthcare.
0: Steve, thanks for joining me today on Leader to Leader. It's exciting to see you and looking forward to the dialogue. Um you know, 30 plus years in one organization, namely Cox Health in Springfield, Missouri, your hometown, actually just north of my hometown of Nixon, Missouri. So this is kind of exciting to, to talk about you and the Springfield area, Cox Health, et cetera. So looking forward to um, the next hour or so. So, you know, you left Cox in, in 22, but you know, some said you retired, but I don't I don't think you have actually retired. I know you're staying really, really busy doing some consulting work. Uh, I know you're spending some time with us uh, doing some advisory work. And then some things we'll talk about here in a little bit around your passion for this whole metabolic health. And you're working with a startup there, which is some really exciting work that I want you to be able to share with our listeners. But before we get to all that, I'd like to for you to kind of go back and, you know, talk about your past. I mean, Cox Health has been in your family for a really long time. Your your father worked there, uh, then you started there, worked 30-plus years there. I kind of look at Cox Health as been a family business for you. So I'd love for you to just kind of take the viewers uh, and listeners uh, back a little bit and explain explain your past.
1: Yeah, Ben. Thank you. Um thanks for having me on on your your podcast, your show. This is great. Um my uh my mom still has a tradition. She's 93 years old that we we gather every Friday night um my immediate family and um uh, a few years back I did the math and we had 160 years of service to Cox Health um with my my father, my sisters, my brother-in-law. Um so long-term commitment. My dad my dad started there in 1965, uh, actually the year I was born. Um, I kind of wandered the halls hanging on to his uh, pant leg, learning a lot about uh, health care. And uh, it became more than just a, a job. It, it's it's your hometown. It's um, it's family. Um, uh, very passionate about working for that organization, working for a town that I love. Well, oh, Steve, that's incredible.
0: 160 plus years of service to Cox Health, the Springfield area through your family family. Um, uh, I, all I can say is, wow, and, and thank you. I'm saying it's quite the, quite the commitment you and your family have made. And, and, and it's, it's pretty awesome to, to, I'm sure, to have experienced that. So your last 10 years at Cox Health, you were the CEO. And, and I think this is relevant a lot today because during that time, it was, I mean, it was m activity. You had to drive to survive kind of thing, figure out how do you maneuver quickly, Uh, effectively, efficiently, and you guys went on a pretty big growth streak there where you were acquiring, you were building. I kind of think we're, you know, past COVID here in the sense some of that's returning. I'm seeing, personally, we're seeing a lot of activity with our business and helping, you know, organizations who acquire other systems, help them standardize on technology platforms, et cetera. But, you know, so for those CEOs and CFOs that are going through some of that now, what, I mean, as Max was coming in, what are you telling him uh, about how he can help, na- you can help him navigate some of the challenges they're going to face in, in, the, in this new environment?
1: Yeah, you know, um, you know, we, we did have a lot of growth. Part of it was this realization that the cost structure um, and the reimbursement weren't, a, we weren't able to reconcile that. You know, the Medicare reimbursement rate, in Southwest Missouri, the Medicaid rate is particularly low. And if you remember about 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, people were talking about getting your cost structure down to Medicare rate. And we did the math. And um, we didn't think we could do it without compromising quality, uh, low, you know, laying off staff, et cetera. So we began to think, okay, if we can't do that, how can we better do that? Well, managed care companies were taking advantage of us. So we began this strategy of um, of broadening our network um, to become essential, um, to payers. And then we began to realize, you know, if we took on the risk, we can manage this population. So we began to think of our market more as a blanket that we want to cover. Um, that way, if we had the full insurance dollar, um, we can manage these costs. Um, prevention does that, um, et cetera. So we, we integrate our network. We brought in, um, completely integrated medical staff. We uh, brought in insurance companies, um, Merged several hospitals and, and c- kind of completed a complete footprint um, or a giant octopus that I now left uh, max to try to manage a uh, multi leg octopus so um right. uh, so that's the new CEO of Cox he's a wonderful guy he comes from a he has more of an engineering mind and yeah. I think when you get to this level when when I started at Cox we were thirty two hundred employees, and when I retired we are twelve thousand five hundred maybe wow. two hundred fifty million in revenue uh to, to two billion. And I think what it takes to grow that monster is a different skill set than what it is to manage it. And so, you know, my advice is, you know, you've, we've got to make reliability in healthcare. We've got to invest in um, platforms. Uh, one of my driving philosophies is that we want uh, one clinic because we had about 80 clinics that kind of acted separately. We wanted one chart so that we could integrate the knowledge and information together. We wanted one signature so that we had the authority and a contract to represent everyone. Um, which gave us um, maybe more essential to managed care companies, and then one healthcare system. So, bringing all that together um, was, you know, maybe my challenge. Now managing this monster is the new CEO's challenge. So, my advice is hire really smart people, um, smarter than me, that have more <laughs> of an engineering mind to kind of bring us together.
0: That's awesome. Well, Steve, the bet's paid off because you you guys did extremely <laughs> well. You saw incredible financial performance over the over your ten year, and then. You know, but uh, I'm sitting here thinking about your probably what, seven years into your tenure, and you're probably thinking about the next chapter and what's that going to look like for me? And then kind of wham, right? COVID. Yeah. Uh, and it kind of thrust you. I remember having interactions with you somewhat during those times and just explaining to me and some of my colleagues what it thrust you into as the CEO, as the kind of the face of community health there in Springfield. Walk us through that because it's just a fascinating time in in our history. I think, you know, uh, people in your position can learn from a lot of what you went through, mistakes you made, things you did well, just would love for you to share some of that.
1: Yeah, it's hard to encapsulate that time. Um, uh, you know, I'd start by saying my, my philosophy um, in leadership was um, to not be very public. Um, as a matter of fact, I think when you're public, um, become very um, uh, outspoken, um, you take the light away from your team. And so if there's a good thing, um, I'd rather the CEO not speak about it, but have that leader who's involved speak of it. And I made the one caveat that, but yeah, of course, in a crisis, a CEO has to be the one that steps up thinking that I'd never be in a crisis like that or of that magnitude. And if I did, it may last a day or so. And, um, you know, it didn't. And um, we began to realize that our our market was different. We're three hours away from a larger system. We had to take care of our own. Um, We have a good um, competition in town. Um, Their leadership was really based out of about three hours away. And so kind of local connections were maybe more powerful for us. Um, and we began um, with the philosophy when we saw this thing hit you know, Madrid, um, if you knew that there was going to be a natural disaster coming and maybe you had just weeks or a few weeks to prepare, how hard would you work um, knowing that maybe your work effort could save lives? So I remember people in the community were wondering why we were working so hard because the virus has never even been in Missouri. Um, we knew it was coming. We knew we had time to prepare Um, And we could make a difference. And so that's when our team really came together. Um, I I liken it to, um, you know, maybe that readiness feeling when um, uh, soldiers were about to land on Normandy Beach, this kind of this energy, this um, kind of deep conviction that we're going to make a difference. And um, we listened. And our philosophy was that this is an open book test and the answers are all around us. Um, we had a, a, an infectious disease doctor. It was a friend from Kirkland, Washington. That's where the first nursing home outbreak was. He, uh, he gave, he was kind enough to give us updates um, at, like at midnight. Often we'd, we'd reach out to him. There was a nurse uh, director from an ICU in Madrid and um, uh, one of our surgeons, uh, cousin, and uh, we were in constant contact with her early on. Tell us, What we don't know, you know, we can watch the news, but it doesn't tell us that things are going to happen that could happen wrong. And uh, that's when we, you know, I remember one video uh, exchange with her where she had goggles hanging outside the ICU that were from Walmart because they didn't have PPE and the world didn't appreciate we might not have enough PPE. Um, I remember her telling us that um, uh, they ran out of oxygen. They had to shut the street down and bring in giant purple tanks because no hospital had ever anticipated having Oxygen demands that high. Think of a normal patient, maybe three liters and uh, COVID patients, 60 liters, and then have 300 of those. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think what, what was chilling the most to me is when she told me they shut down the Madrid Municipal Skating Arena uh, so that we could, um, uh, they could use it for a morgue. Um, that gave wow. us um, time. Um, our community gave us time. Our city, um, we're a pretty conservative part of the state. And, um, our city leaders, we asked them buy us a few weeks, um, so we can build. And so our team was pretty amazing. We had the idea that we needed more ICU beds. Um, I'm a, I'm kind of unsophisticated. I saw Vanderbilt had built ICU beds in their parking garage. And I just said, I want one of those. And, uh, you know, our team, our, our VP of facilities, a man named Rod Schaefer, who is a miracle worker. He said, how quick do you want it? And I, I said, two weeks, um, almost being facetious and, um, we had a, a shell space, and we got that space um, finished out, designed, pr- approved um, by city and state, um, s- uh, beds, technology, um, medicines. It was ready to go in two weeks, um, which gave uh, our team and our community a great sense of confidence because um, we could handle it. So it was stories like that. It was when our HR department said, "Hey, school, um, you know, is a problem." Um, 83% of our employees are, are women and they tend to have more, maybe more responsibility in child caring and uh, we're going to lose our staff. So our team, we had a daycare. Our team said, let's create a school. So we created a school for 300 students in our fitness center um, that um, allowed our parents to still work and et cetera. So um, great work with the state. Um, uh, you know, we, we were worried about the vaccination clinics because at, at that time there was a limited amount of vaccine. And they are prioritizing who should get it. And uh, so we knew that we had an electronic record that we could um, take that data and and segment it down to the highest risk to the lowest risk and prioritize it and then upload it quickly. So we ran massive vaccination clinics like like many systems did. So lots of really amazing team uh, dynamics and. Um, And then, of course, it turned dark um, when I I think um, misunderstanding, misinformation, confusion, fear came in. And then we saw our team no longer be lionized, but um, nurses working 20 hours at a time going to the grocery store with a mask on and being told they shouldn't wear a mask and being spit on and death threats. Um, Stuff that's aggravating. But, you know, we're in healthcare, And the thing that we appreciate is we take care of mental health. And um, the base level of psychosis in almost every community is one percent and so um you know we we knew that was that was what we had to deal with
0: wow uh, steve i it's it's hard to listen to that sometimes you know just to think of uh, the challenges that you guys went through but i know you know with thoughtful swift deliberate action you know i know it's challenging but you guys save lives and i think that probably gives you some level of comfort knowing that you save lives you 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 did the very best you could possibly do to ensure that you were keeping your community safe. And, and, you know, you became the face of that and that was a, a huge burden for you. So, you know, from me to you, thank you uh, for doing that. And I know you, you quickly point to your team and just all the heroic yeah. efforts, but uh, uh job well done job. Well done. For
1: Thanks sure. Dan. Yeah. I, I can barely take a blood pressure. So I, I don't, I don't get much credit for that, but a great team. Yeah. So, hey, Steve, I
0: mean, so coming out of COVID, you know, there's going to be some long term effects. I think one of the ones we're seeing just every day that we're facing is the the growing workforce shortages and challenges. It's, you know, it's to the point where uh, I know when I was at Adventist Health uh, during this time and a little post is just the challenge of the cost. So it's, you know, that's, you talked about it earlier, the compression of, uh, the big squeeze is on, and one piece of that is is the overall cost, workforce being the biggest cost you have. And now you've got demands growing, volumes rising, workforce shortages. Uh, where does it give? And is there a bigger thought that needs to be talked about, whether it's at a regional or national level? Would love your perspective on on that, challenges, that challenge that we're all facing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if if you you put the the calculus together that we have uh, uh, probably a decreasing workforce and increasing demand, um, you know, that that convergence doesn't look good. And so you look at, you know, how can we become more efficient, more productive? And, you know, most ways that we become more productive are incremental. You know, we uh, we we maybe we have one less scrub tech in the OR for a heart case or we ask people to work a little harder. Um, But then if you think of um, these giant disruptive changes, um, think of Henry Ford, um, who made the assembly line, who made leaps, you know, logarithmic thousand percent improvement in productivity. I think those are the kind of things we need to look for. You know, so uh, virtual health is something that I think um, we we all woke up to. We looked at our demand curve. We opened up. We made free virtual health uh, visits to decrease demand on the ER during covid. Um, we made that decision on a Friday and opened it up on a Monday. And, um, wow. you know, of course our demand went up probably tenfold. And so looking at things like virtual health, um, and the bigger piece I think we'll go into, if you take on risk, um, it's, you can't be more, much more efficient taking care of a heart attack than not having one. Um, and so the, the approach we can take to reduce metabolic health crisis, the, the things we can do to reduce risk, um. In a fee-for-service environment, that doesn't really reward hospitals, but in a in a, an environment where there's value-based and an environment where we're taking on risk that rewards hospitals, so I think those systems that can prepare to take on risk, control the whole dollar um, of you know you know when we talk about the medical loss ratio, we were always offended by that in healthcare. Medical loss ratio is a percentage of premium that went to medical care. And, you know, right. we think that premium should be very close to hundred, you know, and so the insurance companies think that that's, that's where profit and overhead comes. And so you carve out 12% of, a, of, of, you know, provider care um, with those ratios. So I think that's where you make these giant leaps is um, finding new ways to reduce risk. Um, a thing I like to preach is, um, you know, our GDP is 18.2% of its healthcare um, and in Europe, in um, United Kingdom, for example, it's 11%. And um, is it our hospitals are that expensive? Um, I will contend it's because our patients are that sick. Um, meaning our metabolic crisis, 89% of our patients have a metabolic disorder syndrome. I believe the difference in our GDP and that of United Kingdom is mirrors a difference in our metabolic disease syndrome rate um, versus United Kingdoms or all of Europe. So if we can focus on that, keeping our people healthier, um, that's where you make these big productivity changes and reducing cost.
0: Very, very insightful, Steve. And that kind of leads me, you're kind of leading me right to where I want to go. So this is, this is good. Um, You and I, last time we spoke, you talked about a trip you took um, with your wife and you guys were out of the country and I, it was, very vivid to me the way you described as you were migrating back to the U S kind of concentric circles, if you would, from a travel standpoint, every concentric circle, closer back to the U S you saw people who were heavier, less healthy. And then when you get back to the U S it's kind of your point on there, we're just not as healthy. We're not as well. We're sicker. We're heavier. We've got lot of more, a number of more comorbidities, et cetera. And, you know, you're, you've now dedicated a lot of your, your retired working time uh, to thinking about and talking about and working in around metabolic health. So I'd love for you to kind of tell that story, talk to us about what you're doing in that space and, and kind of where you see that going.
1: Yeah. Th- thanks, Ben. Um, you know, I think right after I retired, um, I began to, you know, have a little bit more time to kind of read and research, um, not the day-to-day crises. And it, it it occurred to me that I've been in a pandemic of plague my entire career, um, a metabolic um, plague, um, you know, and the numbers are pretty horrific. And you think of it, the only difference is it's not as acute as urgently, but there's more deaths. Um my 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 most powerful statistic I can think of is in 1975, two percent of us had diabetes and about 90, 95 percent of that was type one. And today, 11 percent has uh, diabetes and 90, 95 percent is that type two, um, not to mention, you know, hypertension, stroke, heart disease, all the things associated with it. So um, I started working for a company called uh, Journey's Metabolic. And what they're doing is super cool to me. They've taken these physician created protocols um coaching um uh, education um and then scaled it up with technology to make it accessible um by healthcare systems insurance companies or maybe even individuals so simple way to describe it is you you've, they've got this proprietary technology called biosense which measures your ketones your fat oxidation oxy- oxidation and you you can measure your uh, blood sugars um then they have um an app that has the clinical protocols of physicians written. You get a daily drip of, of uh, education. Um, it's got a scanning technology, you scan it over your food and it will download all the macronutrients. And, and it guides someone on a course to change behavior. Um, you know, right now the world's kind of being taken over by Ozempic, And um, that worries me um, because Ozempic doesn't create uh, behavioral change. And like all the new drugs, um, we get this uh, exuberance, we overprescribe it. We become aware of side effects. We probably underprescribe it, and that goes back to kind of maybe where it should be. And um, you know, with with the Ozempics of the world, when you when you take um, uh, when you when you look at um, like body composition, the weight people are losing is fifty percent muscle, fifty um, percent fat, and and we know that's not healthy. We know that that's starvation. And so, I love to be uh, involved with a group that's trying to um, change our culture because what's wrong with our country in terms of health has everything to do with our culture, um, fast food, processed food, sugar. And, um, and even though I noted, you know, uh, flying back from, you know, Amsterdam, you know, eventually Springfield, Missouri, uh, the rate of metabolic disease, you know, um, it's, it's nothing um, to blame people on because we're, we're in a food swamp. We have such bad quality right. food. And so to change that um, is something we're excited about.
0: Well, that's exciting. I mean, um, I know it's something that you're passionate about. I know when I was at Adventist Health, we were heavy into blue zones and and just trying to figure out how yeah. do you go activate that same kind of mentality, which is you gotta you gotta eat better, move better, think better, all those sleep better, et cetera and it's a yeah, you know, it's a really important thing, and I'm glad we have people like you <laughs> that are waking up every day thinking about that for sure
1: <laughs> <Thanks>. um. <laughs>
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot us every time in in these podcasts we 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 spend a little bit of time talking about leadership. Um, and you've one have been around a lot of leaders pretty much your entire life, and then you've been a leader in most of your professional career. But how did you find your own leadership style, right? Because I, I assume your 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 father and your mother and your aunts and the, you know they were all leaders, but they had their own style. What? How did Steve find his groove, I guess?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, this is, I think it, for every leader, there's a different leadership style, right? And you've, I mean, ultimately you've got to, I think mean, a good leader becomes authentic, um, true to who they are, which um, makes us all a little bit different. I i i um, had kind of an amalgamism of leaders that influenced me. And I remember kind of running this calculus in, in different scenarios, like, what would Boone Powell do? Boone Powell was the CEO of Baylor when I was there. Um what would my dad do? Um, what would uh, other other leaders that I admired um, uh, physicians I admired growing up what would they do and um, ultimately I kind of I, I think you develop your own style but for me the maybe the most important thing is to learn that as a leader um, if you're authentic and um, if you care and it's okay to show that you care um, you know it's okay to have emotion um, especially when it's related to compassion um, that that really um connects well where most of us try to put this veneer up that we're kind of invincible. And I will tell you there are times, you know, especially, you know, when we had a great loss, we lost when we lost our first employee um to COVID um in our own ICU, a nurse. Mm. Um, you know, it's hard not to tear up over that. And um I think if that's an authentic response, that's how we should be. Um and so I I I I put all those leaders together and tried to um Try to be the best person I could be. And I failed many times and made lots of mistakes, Um, uh, often supported and propped up by a really wonderful team. And um, I I never had that, you know, I worked with leaders that maybe they lost their job and it seemed like they were afraid to hire someone really competent because they may take, take their spot. And I was always in a position of like, I want to hire the smartest person possible, right? The Jack Welch quote, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're really bad at hiring um, so I, I think that's part of it too. Um, you know, uh I also um I also be believe in speed. Um, you know, if you're if you're creating a baseball team, Ben, or a football team, we're talking about football, um, you may decide to be big or strong or fast and um and create a philosophy around that. And our leadership team was built on speed. And um it seems natural in healthcare because everything we do, speed matters. Love it. Door to um, balloon time, door to aspirin time. How long it takes to get a, a screening mammogram back? All these things can affect life, and so in the pandemic, it really tested that. We we saw the speed of our team um, uh, wasn't designed for pandemic, but boy, it really played out. We, I, I like to tell the story that we might we were making a decision whether or not to start masking on a Monday. This Friday afternoon. We sent this final email to a group of leaders. Everyone weighed in. And uh, we implemented masking in about 85 locations over the weekend. And then wow. Monday, one of the leaders said, yeah, I think we should do it. And we're like, what is he even talking about? You know, it was we made this decision three days ago and he, he was just catching up. And we're like, OK, great guy, probably not on our acute crisis team, probably in our long term planning team, you know, more of a deliberative person. So but I think um, all those things come together to build a management style that um, uh, my, my good fortune in life was to have really really amazing people around me maybe a little bit of luck in helping pick people you know picking a good team around me
0: well I think it's a you know a bit of a science but it's a lot of art and in, in, in picking the right people and you, you seem to figure that out Steve so congrats to you and and you know your teams and uh, the teams you built and what they've accomplished it's 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 extraordinary um, you know when you think about a lot of when a lot of people think about a CEO of a large health system, dynamic, uh, growing. They think, "Well, this person's got to be just an eccentric extrovert," you know, <laughs> uh, all those things. But you're you're a self-described introvert. So I I I was thinking about that, and I I've known you a little while, and I would say that that's that's probably fairly accurate. But I think you've somehow been able to almost in a judo term use that as a strength so i'd like for you to talk about because i think there's a lot of introverts out there that could, you know really be put into large really important leadership roles but they maybe don't pursue those because of that introvertedness and you've taken that and made it a strength so i'd love for you to share about that
1: yeah um yeah i i, I test introverted um, although i think it's a skill set you can develop Maybe the difference is um, an extrovert when they're around people at energy and people like me around people. It, it ultimately drains me a little bit. Um, I I grew up um, with a speech impediment and dyslexic. And the idea of public speaking was, um, as it is for many people, the scariest thing possible. And um, I, when when I was very young at the opportunity, I worked for our senator, Senator Danforth, Ben, you probably remember that name. Yep. Uh, and. Great, great man. And Ronald Reagan came to town and uh, I got to meet him and uh, it got me fascinated with him. And I read Peggy Noonan's book, um, When Character Was King, and it described that Reagan was a shy person. Um, And when his movie star career kind of was slow, he got this gig working for General Electric and he he hosted like a Sunday night technology show. But part of the gig, he had to go visit GE plants Um, Mm -hmm. and he'd visit like three or four plants a week and speak to each shift. And that practice made him a good public speaker. And I think that sort of thing, those kind of people inspired me. So I, I realized that, okay, what I have to do is if anyone asks me to speak, I'm going to have to say yes. Uh, ben, that's why I'm speaking to you right now. I'm still trying yeah, to hold on oh, to that, right? I'm,
0: even, I'm happy we're helping you.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm still learning. Um, so I, I think all those things factor in. But I, I believe in certain causes and I believe you can't make change happen. Without having a voice, um, maybe a voice for others, and so to kind of refine and create that skill is important. And um, maybe over the over the years, I got better at it.
0: That's awesome. Um, I think there's a lot of people who are going to hear that, and they're going to be inspired by that. So uh, that's <laughs> yeah. a, I'm excited to see where where that one goes. So, hey Steve, we're going to land here with some lightning questions. We always, you know, it's right. know, every every podcast seems to do them. So um, I guess I'm, uh, uh, taking that on. So when you're not working, what's the one thing you lean towards to, to relax?
1: I, I like being outdoors. As a matter of fact, if we change our dress code to wear shorts outside, <laughs> I'd probably still be working. Um, I love fishing. I love kayaking and canoeing and hiking and, um, especially love fly fishing. Um, but being out outside, um, and have a good reason to be outside fly fishing. Um, it's always in beautiful areas The fish, nowhere to be. And, um, and so if you just stand in a river admiring it, you look kind of silly, but if you have a fly rod in your hand, people think you have a purpose. And so, um, I, I enjoy fly fishing in particular.
0: Well, and you can't live in the home of Bass Pro Shops,
1: right? Right, And not
0: have some affinity towards, Trying to hook the big one, so um, that that's that's, right. sounds like a great activity. So, I see lots of books behind you. You've mentioned a couple books during the podcast. Here, a uh, couple books you'd recommend rent to uh, upcoming leaders that have influenced
1: yeah. you. Yeah, wow. So, so, so a lot. I mean, an early one was Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits. One, um, uh, I, I I met him in nineteen eighty nine or ninety, probably. Um, I got to go with him to a trip from the airport. And so I looked at it as like, Hey, this is a really expensive consultant. I get to uh, pick him up from the airport when I was at my fellowship. And the, the idea to begin with the end in mind, um, was powerful for me. And actually that was when I wrote kind of a life plan, um, where I wanted to be, when and, uh, by creating that plan, it, um, it, it helped me get there. So yeah, I, I believe in that, um, recent books, um, there's an author Peter Atia, who's a Johns Hopkins uh, oncological surgeon, who's uh, studied um, uh, what it takes to live long and live healthy lives, and um, he's he's brilliant. Um, I uh, I finally read Ben the Harry Truman biography. I oh, think really? it's a thousand pages long, and uh, when I retired, I was able to do that. And uh, that's an old one, but um, being a being from Missouri like you and I are, and admiring uh, one awesome. of our leaders like that that was that's a good book too
0: that's great so obviously you you have and I have a passion for Springfield Missouri what's your favorite city not named Springfield Missouri
1: yeah well you know me Ben um I mean I mean let me first tell you why I love Springfield um uh it's not because it was 82 degrees last week and 24 degrees yesterday right um I I look I look at it this way um Right now where I sit, I'm about 10 miles from nearly everyone in this world. I love, um, I have two nieces, uh, ones, uh, in residency in, uh, in, uh, in Wisconsin another ones, uh, faculty in Kentucky and the rest are here. And so, yeah, Springfield's really important to me now. Would I like Springfield to be like in Kauai and have all my family? That'd be fantastic. And so that, that would be, I love Hawaii. Um, and, uh, um, I love Kauai, um, love the big Island. And, um, yeah, I think if I had to name a city, um, it would, it'd be one of the small cities in Kauai. Um, uh, if I could move my entire extended family, even, even people, I barely know. I just like being around people. Right. I know, right. um, that's nice in a small that. town.
0: I love that. Um, well, Steve, we're going to wrap. So I think this has been really, really fan- fantastic. And, you know, if you I, Growing up in the area, there's lots of really famous people that have made a big difference in Springfield and the community. And I think of Johnny Morris Jr. He's global, right? Uh, Founder of Bass Pro, more local guy, John Q. Hammonds, and the influence he's had in the city and just in the support he had for the university there, Missouri State University. When I I grew up, um, close friends with the O'Reilly family. And yeah, I think about auto parts family. stores, and not, not only their business, but then what they've done with that to support the community and, and all the different endeavors there. But you know, they the Edwards family should be on that list because no, no. you guys have 160 years of supporting the community and it's just really, really neat. So thank you. And I appreciate you, um,
1: you spending time with me today and
0: this is, this
1: is fantastic. Well, it's been wonderful, Ben. Great great to see you. And thanks for the time and look forward to seeing you again. Likewise.
0: That was a lot of fun catching up with Steve. He's done so much in healthcare, and I know he's going to continue to contribute to our industry for years to come. Here are my top takeaways from our conversation. One, for some leaders like Steve, healthcare is a calling. Growing up in a family of healthcare executives and providers has shaped his life path and compelled him to lead and make a huge difference. Two, the best leaders are authentic and true to themselves. It's okay to show compassion and, and be emotional as a leader. And three, unhealthy lifestyles drive the US healthcare costs even higher and strain our healthcare system. Our industry and our leaders must invest in prevention and wellness as one way to stem the tide.
1: Thanks for joining us for Leader to Leader. To learn more about how to fuel your own personal leadership journey through the healthcare industry, visit healthcareitleaders.com. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any insights and we'll see you on the next episode.